Welcome to this edition of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. You know, we've been wanting to talk to Francis McGuire for a while, David, um, the president of ACOA. Uh, they play a big role within the region and have for some time. And uh, part of the discussion was also about uh, Francis's career, which has really been quite substantial, no matter how we, how you look at it. He's been in the public sector. He's led a big private sector organization. Uh, he, he really has had a, a very interesting career. Um, and as he told us, he came out of retirement at the urging of some significant people, including Frank McKenna, I believe, and Donald Savoie, the father of ACOA, who we talked to not that long ago, to take on this role. And uh, he's obviously uh, moving the organization in a different direction than where it was going before. Yeah, that's right. And I think it was an inspired pick. I think normally that role would have been taken by a senior bureaucrat in the federal government system historically. And so to come outside of government and pull Francis out of retirement, uh, a guy that's known to be a bit of a maverick and to shake things up, I think was a, was a really wise decision. And his sort of general vision that any problem is our problem, right? If it's a barrier to economic growth in the region, having that as a sort of stated vision for a co and he did say there's not some, some things they're not going to be able to solve but at least they understand now that if there's roadblocks to economic growth in the region a coa should be thinking about those and working with partners i think that's a very important vision uh, uh for a coa you know, we started the conversation with um the discussion about his time as the ceo of major drilling one of only three publicly traded companies in new brunswick uh, when he started, uh, as he indicated, the company was basically in financial trouble. It had revenues of about $100 million a year. And 15 years later, it had revenues of $800 million and had become the second largest mineral drilling company in the world. And uh, it was fascinating to talk to him about the strategies that they employed. And I think that that will be a very interesting part of the conversation for those people looking uh, internationally to grow their businesses. His strategy was really uh, excellent, obviously, to lead to that success. Yeah, when I worked for him back in the mid-90s, he brought in Ken Wong from Queens uh, to sort of lecture all of the staff at the department. And I think, you know, being uh, simplistic and clear about what you're trying to do is very, very important for a CEO. And one of the things that Francis McGuire was known for was his hard work. When I started in the early 90s, I to sort of make my point, I would stay till seven, eight o'clock every night uh, to, you know, so to work myself into a position where they couldn't let me go. Uh, but every time I'd leave, Francis would still be there. He'd be the last person in that building, uh, the, the fifth floor of the Centennial Building in Fredericton every night. So he's an extremely hardworking uh, guy. And I think the example you cited is proof that subject matter expertise is not necessarily needed for these CEO roles. You can bring an expertise and a style and an approach into a different, completely different industry and get great results. And I think that was his concern, right? When he took that job, he said, I'm not sure I have the industry skills, but that's what not what, that wasn't what was needed. You needed to have the strategic skills and the strategic understanding about how you're going to grow that business. And uh, he obviously did incredibly well uh, at Major Drilling. Uh, that's right. Uh, we talked about why there weren't more publicly traded companies. He, he said something that I had not thought about. He said that the uh, companies that uh, go public uh, really have a need for ongoing capital. It's not a one-time uh, you know, uh, need. It's an ongoing need. And that's why banks are more interested in supporting uh, companies that have that uh, um, need for capital uh, on a regular basis. And I hadn't thought about that, but that's uh, that makes sense, doesn't it? I think it makes sense, although I would say there's probably a lot of companies in Atlantic Canada that could use a lot more capital if they wanted to take more risk and they wanted to grow their business. So I think that the point is well taken, but I still think this idea of trying to foster a few more publicly traded companies in the region is not necessarily a bad idea, particularly when you compare you know, to the rest of the country. there's That's one thing that sort of stands out, particularly in New Brunswick, but also across Atlantic Canada, is this very few 
uh, very low number of publicly traded companies. So that's a bit of a red flag for me, but his answer made a lot of sense. Major drilling, as we when we talked to Denny Larocque a few weeks ago, you were, you'll recall that his, his growth strategy was also capital intensive. He wanted to buy other firms, you know, buying equipment and so on. So having access to that capital market is incredibly important for, uh, for firms like that. And then moving on to his new role um, as the president of ACOA, we had a very interesting conversation. I think that uh, clearly he he's focused, they're focused on a couple of uh, issues. Um, labor shortages is key. Uh, the digitalization of the economy is key. You know, um, he mentioned demographics. I, I, I must, as an aside, mention that I had presented over the last decade numerous times to senior people at COA talking about demographics and labor shortages or to come. So I'm hopeful that I might have influenced their thinking in that regard. Maybe not, but I'd like to think so <laughs> anyway. But, uh, you know, um, and, I, and, I, and the whole issue that he mentions around uh, automation, uh, um, where to his numbers, he's got about 30% of the people in the private sector thinking about automation right now, but we need more, obviously. It's one way to deal with the uh, labor shortages. At the same time, I'm not really sure that uh, that there is focused on narrowing the GDP gap that this region has, rest, the rest with the rest of Canada. And and by my really rough calculation, you're way better at, at this than I am. But if you look at the last decade, uh, as an example, on average, Atlantic Canada has trailed. Uh, GDP growth, growth in the rest of the country by about 1%. Doesn't sound like a lot, obviously, but it accumulates in compounds. And, and, and it just means that every year we continue to shrink as a percentage of the economy in Canada. That's a big issue. And uh, now with growing population, that's going to that's gonna abate a bit going forward, surely. But I'm, I'm quite surprised that that isn't a big, still a big measure, a metric for them in terms of success. Yeah, I think that, of course, ACOA's budget is greater than all four provincial economic development agency budgets combined. Uh, so they do have a very relatively large budget compared to the federal government overall. It's just a drop in the bucket. But in terms of this region, it's a big number. Uh, but I think that, you know, my sense of it from talking to senior people around the region is they feel, well, we can't control the GDP. You know, that's, it's, it's hubris to think that an economic development agency control the GDP. But I agree with you. You need to put it out there as a target because then it influences the decisions you make. Then you know you need population growth because it's very hard to drive GDP growth without, without household spending. And, and you know you need more productive companies because then they can compete better in export markets. So I think I, I agree with you. I'd love to see all of the provinces and ACOA have GDP, have a target GDP growth rate, and it should be close to the national average. There's no reason why we can't in this region, particularly if the Premier of Nova Scotia is successful and he gets his, his 2 million population by 2060, he's going to need GDP growth that mirrors the national average. Um, so I think that that makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I don't know what the reluctance there is on the part of these, uh, these agencies. Yeah, so one of the one of the challenges that uh, that we have in our region is that our population has not grown as quickly as the rest rest of Canada until now. And you know, in Canada, we've grown one percent a year on average for sixty years, and that one percent a year contributes to uh, economic growth because you know, at a minimum, people need to eat and they need to be housed, and that creates jobs and, and, and economic activity. Now, <clears throat> at least in the three maritime provinces, we are, we, you know, we're keeping pace with uh, population growth, which on its own will reduce the gap. I'm, I'm positive it will reduce the gap automatically, but we need to keep focused on the fact that we continue to have labor shortages in this region. The issues that, uh, that Francis uh, uh, indicated that they're focused on productivity is important as well because we're less productive than other parts of the uh, of the uh, of the country so you know a lot of the right things are being looked at again uh, we still have to uh, focus on uh, being at least average let's be average in Atlantic Canada in terms of economic growth and then then we can lead the country in economic growth one step yeah. at a time 
<laughs> That's right. But productivity and workforce growth are not mutually independent. Nationally, between the last Great Recession in 2008 and before COVID-19, the workforce nationally added a million people right. uh, and across the country. And that drove a lot of economic growth. And in this region, the workforce barely budged. And if it hadn't been for PEI, it probably would have shrunk. So I think it's both. You need to be more productive, but you also need to have the 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 feedstock, the workforce feedstock for growth as well. So a very interesting conversation with Francis. Let's get to that conversation. And uh, we would love feedback from people who uh, who are listening to this uh, podcast to see um, what their thoughts are. Thanks for listening. Francis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Hi, Don. Hi, David. Francis, you've had a very interesting career from being a deputy minister in the New Brunswick government during Frank McKenna's administration to the CEO of Major Drilling, uh, one of only three publicly traded companies in New Brunswick, and now president of the Atlantic Canada Opportunities Agency. Let's start by finding a little bit more about your career and journey. Uh, where did you get your start in your career, and how did you end up where you are today? I went to Dow, then went to university in France, and ended up uh, working at or um, studying at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies which takes a lot of people into international banking. So I started working for a bank uh, where I learned all everything I know about financial um, calculations, et cetera, which is a heck of a lot. Uh, and from there, went to work for the Council of Maritime Premiers. And that's the first time we start. I started to really get involved in what I would call regional development uh, theory. Uh, people like Tom Kent, uh, there was a committee with people like Tom Kent, uh, Eldon Thompson and others uh, looking at uh, the region and, and what could be done. From there, I went to work uh, with MBTEL. I wasn't uh, really suited for that, but I ended up working in Ottawa for four years in employment and immigration, then transportation. Uh, in transport, I had all the, uh, the key crown uh, agencies, Air Canada, CN, B-Rail, uh, but was working a lot uh, in community development uh, when I was at ENI, and one of the people that was was in Ottawa at the same time was Don Savoy. Don Savoy and I became friends as as political assistants on the Hill, uh, and uh, obviously had a big interest both of us in regional development, the Atlantic economy, uh, etc. So from there, uh, actually ended up uh, working for CN for a little while. Uh, but then got recruited by Frank McKenna when he was leader of the opposition and started working with him and and spent a decade, well, two years before uh, he came to government and then uh, a decade in government. Uh, left When Frank left, I left shortly after, worked for an IT firm uh, that was a very high growth. Actually, I think Atlantic Magazine had it as the highest growth uh, company uh, then. And from there, when the telcos were merged, it was clear that, uh-oh, uh, there's going to be uh, people leaving. So I, I went to see Frank, said, Frank, I think uh, my number's probably up. Uh, and he said, well, listen, uh, we're looking for a CEO for a company called Major Drilling. Are you interested? And I said to Frank, Frank, I don't know anything about drilling. And he said, Francis, you don't know anything about call centers, tourism, or, or business. What's your problem? Good point. <laughs> I actually went to work at Major Drilling for 15 years, and we grew it from $100 million to an $800 million company. And so it is the second biggest uh, drilling company in the world still today. More importantly, because somebody asked, do you want to be the biggest? I said, nope, we want to be the most profitable. Uh, and from there, retired after 15 years, mainly because of travel around the world. Does Half the time I was in another continent. Uh, and just got tired, uh, retired, and then got talked into <laughs> uh, coming back to um, uh, to ACOA, uh, partly by Scott Bryson was probably the first person that put pressure on me. Then Don Savoy put pressure on me, and then Frank McKenna put pressure on me, and finally I said, "Sure, why not?" So that was in 2017. So here I am, Francis. We'd like to find out. More about your role as CEO of Major Drilling. Um, very interesting story, obviously. Over the tenure uh, of the company, uh, with the company from 2000 to 2015, the company grew dramatically, as you outlined, to become the second largest mineral drilling company in the world. 
and all managed from a head office in Moncton. Can you talk about the strategies that led to the phenomenal growth of major drilling and its success? So I do a lot of, uh, I don't know what you call lecturing or appearing in front of the uh, uh, the groups at the uh, Wallace McCain Institute. And I teach them the way I look at businesses uh, of any kind and give them examples. And, and I basically, my premise is, and I've taken this from a prophet uh, at Queen called Ken Wong. There are only three business strategies in the world, period. You just got to figure out which one you are. One is being the cheapest and that you understand and has all kinds of consequences. So look at Walmart, et cetera. The most difficult one is one based on value. And value means you're going to charge the same price as your competitor, but offer something a little more, a little different, et cetera, which is a difficult one. Or you have to be unique. When I came into major drilling, we were basically bankrupt. Uh, the bank uh, had us in special accounts. Uh, we couldn't do things. But I noticed that, uh, the, and, and we were competing against every mom and pop in the world. This was the, during a down cycle and getting beaten up pretty badly. Uh, but I noticed that we every now and again to be a manager saying, listen, if I can buy this million dollar machine, I can get this really good contract with a good margin. And I said, well, what's that about? Uh, and then I look and, you know, Chile might have been high altitude. In the Arctic was uh, uh, ice drilling. Uh, and I realized that, geez, you know, all these things uh, create barriers to entry. And if there's barriers to entry, you can create something unique. And so we actually sold the concept of specialized drilling. Uh, and when we did that, nobody in the industry knew what that was. And half our competitors thought, all our competitors thought we were crazy, didn't know what we were talking about. But the uh, uh, the investment market really liked the idea and understood it. And so we focused on specialized drilling and said, we are going to dominate that part of the industry. Uh, not all the industry to be the biggest, et cetera, but we're going to be the biggest because that's the area where you really have control over pricing. Uh, we could, we've done holes that are three kilometers deep in, in the Gobi Desert. Well, there's only two drills in the world that can do that. We own both of them. And therefore, this is what you're going to pay if you want to do it. And, you know, we had quite a cultural uh, issue in terms of teaching our managers, say, don't be afraid to charge high costs, high, high uh, fees for specialized drilling. Now, we also still, you know, uh, specialized drilling at our peak would have been 70% of what we did. So when we're in either underground drilling or just traditional drilling, you have to understand, well, I can't do that. And so we had to train our people to think in terms of three basic, well, two basic strategies. Uh, one unique, this is what you charge. And if you're into, you know, price competitiveness, well, all we have to do is beat there and add value. So a lot of the value we would add is, Things, little things like extra inventory on site, uh, really high safety uh, uh, standards, all of which was for the same price, they were getting a little extra. Uh, and we had to, we actually had on the sleeves of uh, our managers, V equals QR squared, you know, value equals uh, quantity, reliability. I forget what the other one was, uh, but it, it was an indoctrination thing in a sense. Uh, and you learn when you, and this would have been true, it's, it's true of ACOA today. Uh, if you want to, ch often you need to change people's way of thinking and, and mentality and approach to things. And when you do that, you got to repeat, 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 repeat until you're totally sick of hearing yourself, which happens to me a lot. <laughs> as I recall, it was a strategy you employed when you were at uh, uh, with the provincial government as well. Uh, Francis, uh, just as an aside, Don and I are very interested in trying to understand why there are so few publicly traded companies based in New Brunswick. Do you have any thoughts as to why there's it, it, it seems to be either difficult or why we don't have more companies getting to a size where they decide to um, uh, offer initial public offering and go into the public markets. Do you have any thoughts as to why we don't? When you go to the public markets, what the market wants to really know, you know, the bankers, et cetera, is that you're going to continue going. So you have to have a continuous requirement for capital or else they'll forget about you. 
and they might do one deal and then it's done and you languish down there. And so if you have a 10 year, what I tell people and I ask, you have a 10 year perspective where you know you are going to require more capital in each of the next three years. And so for the next 10 years, but every three years, that's what you need to do. And that's why we go to market uh, is to be able to raise, not continual, but at least uh, a, a series of, of uh, raises. Otherwise, the market forgets about you. Uh, and you can do, you know, you, you might have a thing. So there are very few companies that really look to saying, I'm going to continue building equity or, or giving away equity or uh, stuff uh, to do that. But uh, unless you're doing that, unless you then don't go in the public markets, it's very expensive and it will take 30% of a CEO's time. Uh, when I was at major drilling, uh, I would be all over North America. I'd have to go to Paris and London, poor me, uh, to see shareholders, et cetera. And so you all of a sudden, and the skills you need are, are partly storytelling. Uh, you you, you got to tell a good yarn uh, to get people uh, interested. And our yarn was, we're specialized. This is why, this is how, this is what we're doing. And here are the results. Uh, so we had a, we had a yarn, uh, but so between those two things, prepared to spend 30% of your time on the market and second, uh, have a continual need to raise capital. And most people, most of the businesses here, uh, haven't got, or don't think they need that much capital. A few do, but they've been able to manage without going public. Uh, and going to the essentially the the bond market, Francis. Uh, when I worked for you briefly, when you were running uh, uh, economic development and tourism back in the uh, mid '90s, and you had a pretty clear vision uh, at that time of what you wanted, to, where you wanted to take that department. I, I distinctly remember a, an all hands meeting where you uh, castigated anybody that used the term the pitcher province. Uh, a number of you, folks like McKenna and Savoie uh, uh, encouraged you to take the job at ACOA. But what was your vision? Like what, what you, you didn't need to take that job. You were coming out of retirement. What was your vision? Why did you, why did you agree to take that job? Um, hmm. Well, at first I was reluctant because when you get in the federal service, sometimes things are so slow and, and, you know, I was really afraid of that. Uh, it turns out it hasn't been that much of a, a an issue, uh, but that's what I was afraid of and reluctant. And, and Frank used to say, "This is my moral duty to take this job." So I had to like I cut my income by a third when I took the the job too. So my my wife said, "Geez, you know, most people look for a raise, not to cut their salaries." But anyway, <laughs> uh, that's what I did. But I came in with a very clear vision. The very very first day, we had all the employees uh, in you know uh, virtually, et cetera. And I said, there are two things that are going to drive our agenda. One, it's the labor force and what do we do about it? Uh, and two, automation and digitization and what are we going to do about it? That's the future. And also a view that ACOA, um, any economic problem in Atlantic Canada is our problem. We may not be able to deal with it with our own budgets and our own programs, but then we have to lobby other federal departments and others to make them aware. And that took us into some really brand new directions uh, that ACO had never been involved with, including immigration. And, and I know Jupia has done some work that we've been financing around New Brunswick and others, but that never happened before. But it's saying, well, part of our solution has to be uh, immigration. So let's get into the settlement business. Let's start working uh, with a social group. So a new part. Also, a lot of our programming started into, well, what do we do in terms of uh, helping skill uh, work things? And, and all of a sudden, we're into funding much more universities, community colleges, because we need throughput. And so this, this understanding that everything in this decade, not like the decade we were in, uh, David, is about labor shortages and how do you solve them? Now, you take it a step further and saying, if I, if we focus on creating jobs at $15 an hour, we're not going to get anywhere. You, you talk about GDP and others. And, and where we need to focus is on jobs that start at 50, 60, 70,000. And so you start thinking about 
where are the opportunities? And so we started, I think it'd be fair to say before I got there, ACOA would receive ideas from entrepreneurs and help them and and quite successfully. But it was never aggressive in saying, here's some areas we're going to go out and promote and push people to. So they include things, and I call these champion files, and we're organized now around those. So it includes automation. Uh, And so uh, it's dropped off a little bit since uh, COVID, but it it was half of what we ended up doing. But we spent time training our staff on automation. We had four days seminars for our staff. You have to understand, you have to go promote it. We started with understanding entrepreneurs and that they were understood, but they're, you know, um, frightened essentially because they hadn't done it before. So we started saying, well, we'll give you a $50,000 grant to plan it. Don't buy anything, don't do anything. Just get some people put, understand because this is gonna be a five-year voyage. And so do things. So how do you ease people in and then how do you push them and then, you know, finance them, et cetera. So that that was one. Immigration's another. Oceans is, is an area that we're pushing very hard uh, today because uh, everything in ocean tech is high tech. Uh, the idea and, and this gets me to the picture province thing. Man, another picture. Everybody in the world thinks of us as as Peggy's Cove. That drives me I, I we promote tourism but jesus man that's uh, because you know there whether it's robot you know robotics ai these are all the ocean technologies they're very much and anybody coming out of school starts at 60 70 80 000. those are the jobs we got to create other one is food believe it or not and i i didn't know this until the we had a uh uh Atlantic growth strategy. And the premier said, well, we need a food strategy. Everybody sat around the table, my first meeting, by the way, and nobody put up their hand. And so we said, well, we'll put one together. So we went around and and talked to 75 people in the food industry. And and when you look at food from blueberries to fish to potatoes, et cetera, it happens to be the single biggest industry sector in Atlantic Canada. And it affects everybody, not equal. In different ways, but equally, everybody cares, and it's primarily rural, uh, so it ticks all the boxes. But when we went and asked those seventy-five people, we were stunned, and we spent a couple of hours individually with each person because that's when they'll, t- and they all had the, to my great surprise, three, all of them had the same top three priorities. Number one was lack of labor. Number two, we don't know how to automate, and number three was trucking. And I said, well, there's where the food and automation uh, strategies start to overlap. And half of the automation we do today is in the food industries. Now, whether it's lobsters, potatoes, others, bagging, uh, all those things, all of which will improve and is a necessary part of improving productivity and also scaling up to exports. There is a definitive clear line and we just did a, a, a review, by the way, of people that we've been assisting and seeing how their sales growth have gone up. And they've gone up substantially because if I get an order and I got to hire 20 people to fill it today, you're never going to fill it. You are not. You can't find 20 people. If I got to buy another robot, eh, okay, I might have a six-month delay, but I can do it. And so scaling up, getting, and, and part of our, I think my vision is, in terms of what we do now today is I got a $20 million company. I need to make it a $40 million company. Uh, I probably have a few more employees. And so the measure that we used to have for good reason in the 1990s, which was job creation, you know, any kind of job was a good job. Today it's wealth creation. uh, It's profit. It's uh, that those are the things productivity those are the things, and that's the future. We might have no no greater number of businesses, but if everybody grows by fifty percent, now we're catching up to the rest of Canada. Now, so, and we can only do it through automation, digitization. That becomes key. So, those are kind of, and and the startup uh, is another area where we really did focus since uh, uh, I've been there and. And, and the way we've, uh, so whether it's in biotech, uh, we've seen, you know, uh, Verifin, you know, people forget 
that that's the biggest venture deal ever done in Canada. But because it's in St. John's, Newfoundland, it's a one-day story and everybody forgets. Other than the Newfoundlanders, they're they're focused on that. They understand, and it's encouraging more people to go into IT and startups. But there's just tons of them. And, and whether it's bioscience or uh, IT, there's a whole area. And here, David, you'll appreciate why it fits into the labor market. So we fund a lot of uh, uh, companies. Uh, some are extremely successful. Uh some not so much and are the walking wounded for the next decade and some fail. And if you're a bank or a venture capitalist, that's all the, the failures are, well, part of, you know, that's how the industry goes. If you're a development agency, it's a little bit different. If I can get four, five, six young people working in a company for three years and it doesn't work, well, with a little bit of luck, they either got married, bought a house, can't afford to go to Waterloo or Toronto. Now they're stuck here and they'll go work for somebody else. And so it becomes an important stuff. I can think of one company here in Fredericton that hires people out of the gate. It was a failed company. It got restarted. And now the average employee makes over $100,000 a year and they got about 60. And that's those people live in Fredericton. And that's the kind of wealth creation that we need here and, and do. And so we work on that. And we, what else do we work on? Uh, well, we work uh, a lot on, you know, uh, lobbying other departments. So when I say immigration, we work very closely, which we never did before with uh, Immigration Canada. Uh, we work with uh, the Department of Defense on procurement. Uh, and so a lot of the, I think, marshaled a little while ago, um, announced a $60 million plan. Well, that came through the procurement side and we work closely with D&D on lobbying those things uh, and, and uh, uh, with the, the industry department, we, the biggest, uh, the investment in BioVectra on the island came through whew, two years of work. Uh, the SMR uh, thing, which is NRCAN or ICED money, we're working on that internally, working uh, with the proponents and the stuff. So the lobbying part is part of it as well. So anyway, those are the kind of things. But and I should say organizationally, because all this comes down to uh, when I came, I would think uh, be fair to say that um, ACOA operated as four distinct uh, silos in New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI uh, and uh, Newfoundland and not much exchange. And by creating these champion files, we created regional teams, but also I call it my red dot in the middle of somebody's head. Uh, I would say the VP in, in New Brunswick, here's a red dot in the middle of your head. If it doesn't go well, I'm holding you responsible. I don't care about the other VPs. Uh, now each VP has a red dot, so they don't help the other. And it's worked marvelously well. So there's a clear lead among the, the VPs. Uh, People, others want to follow because they understand that why it's important. They're, they're totally bought in, but they have people that in their, under their payroll, et cetera, that are working on this, that they don't control the day-to-day -day anymore of those people. Uh, another VP does, but because everybody, like I said, like the guy on the island, our VP has the food file. And so he's got, got to make sure that that's moving forward. Uh, so he'll cooperate. Uh, and, stuff. and it's worked very well. And, and, there's been more integration that way on these files that I believe, hopefully other people, that these can move the needle. And the needle is wealth creation, many more people. I mean, I'm talking thousands, you know, small numbers don't count. It's thousands that can be earning 60, 70, 80,000 out, out of the gate. ACOA provides various financial support uh, programs for various reasons. Um, including uh, the Tourism Relief Fund that was established by the uh, federal government that will provide a $500 million inv investment to uh, tourism entities over the next two years, and uh, ACOA is, is managing that in the region, as well as the Job and Growth Fund, which is another $700 million that the feds have put aside for the next three years, which is also administered in the region by ACOA. Can you just give us a bit of an overview Quick overview of kind of what the uh, some of some of the examples of uh, the, the, how those funds will be used within our region. 
So they're going to be used very much like we've always used them. So they, in some sense, it's not different. I think the important part of those is that typically our budget's about 350 million. Uh, last year, the year just behind us, went up to 550 million. And it's going to settle this year and next at about 450. So we're a little bit in the decline. Uh, and we keep on looking at uh, people saying, don't look at our programs because we can hardly figure them out. Come in here and tell us what your problem is. What's your challenge? Uh, and so a lot of them were used differently uh, as we went through. So it was everything from in, uh, let's say, aquaculture. How do we help our customers move from, uh, well, first we thought it was all going to collapse for the first three months. It's always panic. And it was just kind of, oh, what do we do to keep you alive? Uh, to, oh, big shift from uh, the restaurant trade to retail. But what does that mean? That means all of a sudden I need new packaging, new some new processing, but particularly new packaging, et cetera. Uh, or I have to, uh, in case of some of them, I need more freezer capacity, et cetera, to do things. So instead of saying, well, we're going to just give you, you know, uh, a subsidy that so you can pay people to stay on, on board, uh, we're actually going to invest these so you can shift uh, to this new side and where there's permanent uh, benefits. And so, you know, what's happening on the... Uh, uh, whether we're out of COVID or not, uh, uh, and whether the restaurants do come back fully, they came back short term or what's going to happen. But at least now we've got some diversification. And so we, we did that with the tourism operators last year uh, was uh, really what they needed was pure out and out subsidies. And so what they wanted is the rent relief. They wanted the, uh, uh, the wage subsidy. And they still continue to want some of that. And the new program just got passed last week, provides some, although under stricter views. Our role, though, is that we've noticed a really clear shift in the tourism industry because of stay vacations. But what I, to what I call the active uh, economy, the active tourism. And so we have a lot of operators who had a couple of bad years, not a lot of cash, can't go back to the bank, have already you know, increased their debt but they don't have the money to actually say, you know, I'm going to actually create a cycling project, but for that, I got to buy $10,000. No, no, you don't get much biking, but I've got to get $20,000 of biking. I need this inventory. I need tires, et cetera. Where do I get my 40, 50,000 bucks to do that? And so on the tourism uh, side, although we can do liquidity if we want to, we really want to focus on how do we let, People make the shift. Let the market, you know, what's the market telling them that they have a hard time adapting to? Let's help them adapt to it. So it could be, you know, a hotel saying, well, I'm going to have a, I'm on a river. I'm going to have a canoeing uh, project and I'm going to hire a couple of young people to take guided tours and, and stuff, but I need canoes and I'm a little uh, cash strap. That's the kind of stuff we want to encourage. Again, again, we are able to do uh, liquidity, so i.e., just I just got to stay alive. But then we also get into sustainability. You know, we, you know, uh, some people unfortunately won't make it, uh, but you know, it's important to drive the economy, whether it's tourism, others forward. If you don't have that view, then you get into the very old style. Well, I'll just throw money at you and probably lose it and, and get nothing out of it. Although, yeah, anyway. So Francis, that leads nicely into our question about metrics. It's a big issue today. If you look at the overall economy, particularly in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, there was about a decade there with very little population growth, very little GDP growth. The uh, work size of the workforce actually shrank. And there didn't seem to be a lot of hue and cry from the economic development agencies. Uh, the folks at ACOA would say, well, the companies we work with are doing fine. The folks at O&B were saying, well, the projects we're working on were doing fine. But there wasn't this overall sort of connection between economic development agencies and the overall economy. So I love what you said earlier about any problem is our problem, because that allows you at ACOA to think about the broader economy, things like immigration and so on. But I guess the question for you is, 
what metrics are you currently using uh, at ACOA to, to indicate whether or not you're being successful with the deployment uh, of those funds and the initiatives that you undertake? So uh, it basically comes down to a new measure that uh, people didn't have before uh, is the quality of the jobs. Uh, you know, we want to get out of this problem of not enough GDP, et cetera. You can create thousands and thousands of jobs at 15 bucks an hour. These are valuable jobs. People have to do it. There's a lot of dignity that comes with those jobs. Uh, but that won't help the big picture. Uh, that big picture macroeconomic uh, is wealth creation. Those are the people. And by the way, the people that earn 100, 120,000. They keep the restaurants going. They get the dry cleaners going. They get all that going. And so you, you you know, you can only do so much. Like I said, the only limitation we have is our budget. So how do we focus that on the best part uh, of growth development? But we do get into things like, you know, things kind of like we got into immigration. Well, now immigration, uh, one of the biggest issues, housing. And so now we're scratching our heads saying, Okay, what can we do about uh, housing, uh, and particularly rural housing uh, uh, in the cities? You know, there's some issues for sure, um, but the market's pretty active. The market doesn't work all that well in rural communities, uh, and that's where you know intervention of some kind. Uh, you know, we're th- with our new minister. We're thinking about okay, what could we do? It'll be marginal, but sometimes if we could lead or, or get other departments to really focus a little bit better because uh, I think it would be fair to say in Canada government of Canada provinces focus on the urban uh, housing problem that's that those are synonymous they do forget about the rural housing issue and you can't attract uh, immigrants I don't know how many businesses I can name a dozen that are having a problem bringing immigrants, not because the recruitment, not because they can't get them, but they get here and there's no place for them to live at a reasonable cost. Uh, And so if you don't solve that, you're not gonna get to the immigration, you're not gonna get to the population. So sometimes you you kind of fall back and you gotta then move forward and say, okay, well, what can we do? And um, you know, we're certainly, (laughs) I hope in the new year, we're gonna come up with a few little good things to at least help along. Uh, so um, those are the macro stuff. So what we measure is you know, the, the the salary mass, if there's a good salary mass. And by the way, when you automate, uh, you typically have to pay people more. You need a community college degree. You need some upgrading. Maybe not, you know, maybe it's a six-week course. And when you do that, you got to pay them more because if you don't, you're going to lose them in, in a heartbeat. Um, and, and so I, I think all that, you know, it's kind of a virtuous circle in a way. Francis, we had Donald Savoie on, uh, a few weeks ago, and he seemed to indicate that he'd like more focus put on rural Atlantic Canada. In other words, he said Moncton's doing well, Halifax is doing well, Fredericton's doing well, and that, uh, the focus of economic development should be on smaller urban centers and rural areas, even suggesting, uh, I think maybe tongue in cheek, but that the, the, the ACOA's offices or the economic development agency should move and focus more in these rural areas. Does he have a point? What, what, what's your thought on this sort of growing disparity between the successful urban centers like yeah. Charlottetown uh, and the uh, sort of more challenged areas like say Prince County in uh, on PEI? So uh, first, presence is really important. So we have 31 offices uh, across uh, Atlantic Canada. So we're in a lot of smaller communities uh, as well. And so we're there. I would say more than half of what we do is in rural, uh, rural Atlantic Canada. But And then some files, such as the food file, is by definition rural. And Don and I have talked, he thinks food should be there. I said, yeah, we agree. We've been at it for three, uh, uh, four uh, uh, years. 
And the issues are automation and now housing uh, coming in. And so there's a lot uh, being done. But I wouldn't give up on the cities, though, either. Um, and it depends what you call cities, too. And, and uh, David, you've had this. You and I both agree that, yes, our definition of cities does not stop at the, uh, the city limit. I mean, is St. John a city? Well, so is Grand Falls and, or uh, uh, Grand Bay. And, and that's all part of the, the economic unit. Uh, and people that live out uh, halfway to, to Norton, they're part of the economic uh, unit uh, often too. So I agree that there's a lot to be done. Uh, I don't think it can just do Oceans tends to be much more rural. Uh, it's high tech. Uh, it's very capital intensive, but it's rural. Uh, I mean, if you look at agriculture, they, none of that happened in downtown Halifax or, or St. John. Uh, but it's got great growth potential and it's high tech. I mean, people forget uh, some of these nets are 10 stories high. Like these are really huge structures. And you say, well, how do you clean them? Well, robots and interesting. Uh, so they have robots, which they control from the shore, which, by the way, has allowed many more women to work in agriculture than before, which is kind of interesting, right? So I know a lot of firms went from zero women because they don't want to be out in the boat for five days with a bunch of guys, putting it crudely. But boy, if I can work, even if it's shift work uh, from shore, a nice warm office, and, and I'm controlling these robots and I can get home with the kids and do what I have to do, because often they do, they can. So all of a sudden, technology is taking this rule and you know, they could control it from city of St. John or they can do it from... Uh, uh, St. George, it, it, uh, it doesn't matter as long as they're connected. Now, connectivity becomes an issue. Uh, but, uh, you, you know, you see this evolution and these robot operators, they, they don't get paid 15 bucks an hour. Because if, if they lose that $500,000 robot or rips a net, net all the pieces, um, there's hell to pay. And so these are really sensitive jobs uh and, and so all the just think of all the communication skills so there's got to be some communication some techies running that the, the connectivity uh again that's the, that's a job you don't start at 20 bucks an hour you start at 40 bucks an hour that that's the kind of stuff we like to see uh, francis i recently wrote a column for uh Brunswick News and the Saltwater Network that questioned the effectiveness of, ec of the economic development efforts in Atlantic Canada, where uh, the economy continues to shrink as a percentage of the Canadian economy and trail the rest of the country in terms of GDP growth by about 1% a year on average, by the way. Um, and I estimated that there was about a billion dollars spent by various levels of governments and communities on economic development activities, yet the region continues to underperform economically. Why is this the case? And what does uh, uh, Atlantic Canada, um, why does Atlantic Canada continue to under, underperform relative to the rest of the country? So uh, it's pretty darn simple. Our, our um, degrees and levels of automation and digitization is lower. And as long as it's lower, it ain't going to catch up. And so, I mean, if you, you want to focus on what can we do, where do we have to put the, the emphasis? And it's been difficult. I mean, David would know this. I've been harping about labor shortages and demographics for, geez, eight years. And I'll tell you the first four years, it felt like, doesn't anybody see this? Like, what's the, I, why am I the only one? I mean, it's demographics. You're not guessing. It's coming. And 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 then to take that in and say, what does it mean? Okay, they got immigration, people, stuff, but it also means automation. I don't meet a single business person saying, if you're not automating, you can't grow, period. Uh, and you can't get productivity up and you can't pay bigger salaries. And people say, well, you know, can I pay bigger salaries? Well, you get productivity up, you can. And by the way, you to get your productivity up, you got to pay more because you got to get this community college or this engineer. I was at, at uh, Dragon Manufacturing, and, and excuse me for using the example. They, they may say, well, don't say that. 
But going in and because they can't get enough welders and they've been to the U.S. to try to get more and build there. But they really in Woodstock, they really have first class welders, but not enough of them. So they, they started buying uh, um, uh, 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 ro- robots to do the welding. And you walk in and see these two guys operating the machines and they got jeans on, they got hunters camo on, etc. And they're pretty relaxed and stuff. And I'm saying, oh, okay, these are good old boys uh, working out of here. But both of them had one thing, a steel ring. And so not paying somebody with a steel ring, you know, 15 bucks an hour. Uh, and that's what it took. And I'm saying, now there's an example of two people uh, that are earning good money, helping productivity, helping uh, Greg, manufacture, Greg Manufacturing grow this is an example. There's this guy up in Hartwood or uh, up there, uh, Greg Hargrove. He runs a um, a maple sugar operation. He's totally automated. He has fiber optics going out to his trees. And how many employees does he have? Well, every spring he's got to hire a few, but basically three employees. And he runs it uh, from a control center. Uh, that, that's out in the woods. Like you're thinking... Man, if they could, or I, I look at the uh, uh, oysters, they've done the same thing. They've automated, they've used AI. Some things have worked, some haven't. You know, there's not a, a clean, clear shot. There's a lot of failures and stuff. But, geez, you find Beausoleil oysters all over the world now. How'd that happen? Well, my own view is you, you can't do it unless you automate. And you can't find enough people. And so when you go into, you can go to the Bank uh, Canada studies, et cetera, our number one failure is that we're not up to speed with the rest of Canada and even worse vis-a-vis the U.S. in terms of productivity, automation, digitization. End of lecture. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, I've argued uh, that there are really too many economic development agencies in the region, often overlapping and duplicating their efforts, many with no measurable means to track their performance and to be held accountable. I mean, I I, I take your point about the the need to digitize and automate. I think that that, with the labor uh, challenges that we have, clearly important, but but at the same time, you know, how do we, we, we still have to close the economic gap with the rest of the country. There's got to be some measures that we can hold economic a- agencies accountable for, don't you think, uh, Francis? You know, at a minimum, if, if, if we're, it's not going to be job growth, sure. it's going to be, you know, digitalization it, and automation. Awesome. That's fine. But there's still got to be, you know, we, we should still at least average economic growth through, with the rest of the country, don't you think? No, you come back to what you can do. And, and, and so you get down to productivity enhancement. And we we measure that. We look at our customers and say, all right, two years ago, you did X. Where are you now? Uh, and so for those now, that's for the people you say, well, great. If you're one of our customers, one of the things we try to do is uh, and then these champion files, we don't just sit back and wait for people. We actually have officers going out trying to say, hey, listen. Uh, you haven't uh, even thought about this. Want to come to a seminar? You want to do this? You want to start? And and we'll help you financially. We'll do whatever. And so we're on a. And David would understand these. Remember the old days. We're trying to change people's minds. This is about changing entrepreneurs' minds. We've got to get them into. I'm going to do this. It's difficult. It's scary. We get it. Uh, it's expensive too. Like it, it, there's no doubt about that. Uh, and so we have to help you do that. And so we measure that. I would say it, it's been a struggle trying to get uh, the, the provincial uh, arms. Well, there's a PI is pretty good. They're pretty aggressive uh, with us. Uh, Innova Corp's pretty uh, aggressive uh, on that too. Uh, but it's 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 a struggle to get everybody on that page. Now, one of the things, well, anyway, uh, so that's got to be the measure. And it's how many people do I have in these productivity programs? And are they doing better, which we're measuring? And how many people are still not in? And it's like 30% are. 
Well, that's 70% that aren't. So how do we get to, all right, now I got to change that with time by being aggressive and get 70% of people in, not 30. And, and that's a mind change. It's, 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 it's repetition, repetition, say it again, push people, give them incentives, finance them, do whatever you can to get them. Francis, we've been talking a lot today about labor shortages and immigration and population growth. It's a big theme here on the Insights podcast, but you know, as we've pointed out, most immigration still occurs in the largest urban centers, uh, Fredericton, Charlottetown, Moncton, Halifax, lesser extent, uh, St. John. Um, what is ACOA's role there? I mean, I think you touched on it a little bit earlier, but you've got a number of challenges in these smaller communities. You've got housing issues, you've got settlement service issues, you've got retention issues, you know, you've got immigrants coming from far-flung places around the world. It's hard enough to get them to settle in Halifax, let alone in Parsboro. So what is the role for ACOA? And I really appreciate the fact that that you've even identified that as a role, because I think if you went back 10 years, you know, ACOA wasn't in that space at all. If you go back five years, ACOA wasn't in that space. So what is the role of ACOA in helping ensure that, that you know, employers in Parsboro uh, or Minto have the workers they need moving forward? Well, you're almost there. How about Chipman? So one of the things we've done in Chipman, for instance, <laughs> is getting the housing thing. And uh, because they didn't have a project manager to develop their housing stuff, we said, well, we'll pay for the project manager uh, because, you know, there's not enough resources or expertise there uh and then got in uh, hoping that way so uh but we have uh in several centers we're actually funding through our our community development stuff centers for um uh for uh, immigrants so that they're actually you know there's a gym and a room and it's a place where they can get together uh so we do that in conjunction we're doing that in chipman uh so we'll do a number of those things saying, all right, what are the community centers? So it's more our community programming. So we've been doing that uh, in rural communities, not, 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 uh, you know, we do multicultural association for Moncton and YMCA and St. John, but you're right. Uh, it's the, but the number one issue in those rural communities is housing. Uh, and uh, so that's why we're now trying to get our heads around, you know, what can we do more than just provide a planner? Um, and, and of course, you know, that's, that's really very often in a small community, the absolutely critical first step uh, that somebody understands zoning and land research and, and what do I need for infrastructure like um, sewers, et cetera. I just can't go willy nilly. Uh, and, our smaller communities for good reason, just don't have the resources to do that. So you can provide that. That's the first step. And we're going to see what we can come up with for a second step because something's needed there for sure. And, and uh, Francophone immigration in the same way, and because it's more rural, uh, is also difficult. Uh, and so we've got to figure out ways to, to deal, to improve that. Just a couple more questions uh, before we um, end the podcast, Francis. Uh, our, our podcast have tried to focus on successful cluster uh, segments in the region uh, as models for other parts of Atlantic Canada, including the biosciences sector and PEI and the ocean industry sector in both uh, Nova Scotia and Newfoundland, cybersecurity as, the, as one in New Brunswick. But what are the other clusters within the region that uh, that you know provide opportunity that ACOA may be focused on and helping to develop? So, uh, first, the enabling technologies around you know things like uh, uh, robotics and others. So we you know we invested in robotic centers uh, in various universities, the University of Moncton among others, uh, AI as well. Uh, so some of them are just enabling technologies, if you would. They're not clusters, but they're necessary everywhere. And so part of what you need to do is to make sure that that exists and it's growing. And we have some. It's way too small. When you look about, you know, we're talking about some universities doubling the size of their uh, 
computer science output uh, from uh, 100 a year to 200 a year. That's really good. But man, that's far short of the mark in terms of what you need to do. So there's the, first the enabling ones. But then, you know, we, we do have strengths in food, which is rural. Uh, and But, you know, whether it's apples or potatoes or uh, aquaculture, uh, these are things that you, centers of excellence, I don't know if I'd call them that, but there's ex, there's industries of, of real sophistication that, uh, you know, we're talking pre precision agriculture. Uh, well, uh, that's science and tech. Uh, it's, it's not just going out there hoeing your garden. Uh, and so those are the kind of things, genetics, uh, for instance, uh, is a really important part of forestry, of potatoes, et cetera. These are really fundamental stuff. Uh, you know, the, the clusters, yeah, they, they develop. There's a little bit of an IT cluster in Fredericton, always has been. It's, it's rich. We support it. Uh, cyber included in there. I, I don't know that, you know, you have to go too, too much further uh, in terms of you know, ocean, shore, biotech, shore. But, you know, biotech's trying to train 500 people right now. Uh, I think all we need to do is focus on how we're going to solve that issue or resolve that. Uh, the IT industry, I mean, I think New Brunswick's looking at over, well, of course, David's involved in this, but over 4,000 people have to be jobs have to be filled i think david you're going to correct me in the next four or five years i mean where are we going to find these people and so i i don't think we have to go looking too much further for another challenge we've got lots of challenges here that we're not meeting <laughs> that if we we need to really focus hard on those and make them work francis we always ask our guests at the end of the interview whether they're optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the region. Now we're going to go out on a limb here and say, because you're the CEO of ACOA and sort of the chief sales guy for the whole region, that you're pretty optimistic of the future. Uh, but what, if you are uh, optimistic about the future of the region, what makes you the most optimistic, uh, you know, that as we move forward, we'll have strong and thriving economy across this region. So um, I'll tell you why I'm worried and, and why I'm optimistic. I think what I just described and, you know, having a clear view of what the issues are makes me optimistic. And, and I would like four years ago, David, you, you know, nobody wanted to talk about uh, labor shortages. And I'm saying, I just don't like this is coming like a train at you. It's demographics. It's not guessing. And so. Yes, people are starting to, to understand that. They're starting to understand some of the solutions. Uh, and uh, so what scares me is that we don't move fast enough. So when I talked about 30% of people get automation, 70% don't. Man, I find that frustrating. But I also say, oh, well, there's something I can do about that. Now, now I can get out there and pound the drum and, and do things. Food's got great potential for growth right through. So how do we pound that? But food is genetics and robotics and, and all those kind of sciences. So how do we drive that? Uh, oceans is the same thing. So we have lots here that I think uh, we have started on the road to convince people that there's something to ahead of us. There's, there's a way to start getting young people into these industries. And so I think we're there. I think like four years ago when I joined, I don't think we we're there at all. So if I look at the last four years thing, we've made some real progress in changing that mentality. I would say, though, you know, I look at the provinces and I would be critical of some of my colleagues saying, yeah, they still, if they get it, they're not acting on it. And they've got to start acting on it. And this, you know, some are much better than others. Uh, stuff so i'm optimistic if we can have because uh, i think we're moving towards a consensus on what sustainable growth and wealth creation is where i get pessimistic when everybody's you know nobody wants to recognize that you have to have wealth creation totally 
I'm a civil servant, so I'll say I'm a small L liberal. We got to be careful here. Uh, somebody might say otherwise, but anyways, small L liberal. But like, I, I really do believe in sharing the wealth. But you got to have the wealth, and we've got to focus on it. A friend of mine actually said, uh, "Wealth gives you freedom." The freedom to choose where you want to spend the money. If you don't have it, you have no freedom because you can't make any choices. And so I, 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 I oh, that's pretty profound. You've got, you want to be free, then you have to have the resources to be free. And Francis, a liberal that likes wealth, that's the kind of liberal we like here, Don and I, on the Insights <laughs> podcast. It's been a great pleasure to have you join us today. We thank you very, very much for your insights. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network. Mark Legere and Tyler McLean helped produce this episode. You can subscribe to the show by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again next week.